I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been <clears throat> in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So, that, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. <coughs> then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Hope you had a wonderful week. Let's now bow our heads, asking for God to minister to us. Father, you know what we have brought and carried in our hearts as we walk through these doors. You know the hope, the joy, as well as the sorrows and the pain. You also know the sense of blandness, the sense of vague uh, anxiety that we feel that we cannot even understand and grasp and therefore are frustrated by. Lord, we are all over the place emotionally, psychologically, physically, and we come to you now that you would come be the great physician that you are and heal and humble as well as exalt and encourage us so that we would know that no matter what we are going through as we live our life on this earth, that our God is near and that he is with us and that by your presence we have hope we have strength, and we have a sense of renewal to carry on to the task that you have given to us of being a blessing to the world. Father, I ask that no matter where we may be, that we would all be unified at this present moment, ready to hear the life-giving words that only you can give. And so, Father, in that spirit, we pray that you would bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Back in 1967, the British rock group Beatles came out with their award-winning song called All You Need Is Love. You guys heard that one? All You Need Is Love. It was written by one of the co-leaders, John Lennon, inspired by the Flower Power Movement. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Flower Power Movement, it was a movement started by a bunch of hippies in direct opposition to the Vietnam War. And basically, the idea behind this movement, and hence the song, is that if you want to overcome all that is dark and evil in the world, if you want to overcome all the challenges and resistance of life, then you simply need to respond with love. Hence, all you need is love. Well, needless to say, the politicians who were alive during this time weren't too impressed. In fact, they were quite annoyed at both the idea and the song itself. And of course, if you think about it, it's not too hard to understand why, because when you consider the kinds of challenges and problems they were elected to solve, massive hunger, genocide, conflict, war, government corruption, economic crisis, it's easy to understand when they hear this idea of flower power, all you need is love. At best, it sounds naive. At worst, it can become insulting. And of course, I would imagine that many of us in this room might feel the same way. 
When you think about the magnitude of problems and troubles that you have to deal with, try and figure out, the idea of someone coming up to you as you're struggling through all that, hey, cheer up, all you need is love, can make you want to respond with rage rather than sigh with relief. But what if I told you that that message is fundamentally true? What if I told you that all you really do need to overcome all your hardships, all your sorrows, all your pain is love? How so? Well, that's what today's message is going to try and answer as we are finally finishing today. Guys, we're finally done with this series, The Gospel in the Family Life of Joseph. And today we're going to see how all you do need is love because love has power, not flower power, but real substantive power because it can heal and restore the fundamental organism that stabilizes all of society, and that is the family. And so with that in mind, three things I want to share with you in today's message, which I call the fruits of reconciliation, the thing that make reconciliation such a potent, powerful force of healing to this broken world. First, we're going to talk about the collateral healing of reconciliation, which is the first fruit. Then we're talking about, they're going to talk about the enhancement of love through reconciliation. That's fruit number two. And then we're going to end it with the Savior who provides reconciliation, the root that brings forth those two fruits that I just mentioned, okay? The collateral healing of reconciliation, the enhancement of love through reconciliation, and the Savior who provides reconciliation, okay? Let's begin with the first point, the collateral healing of reconciliation. So if this is your first Sunday with us, let me give a quick recap so that you can catch up to where we're at in our study of Joseph. So Joseph, the main character that we're studying, has been estranged from his brothers for over 20 years. And why? Well, it turns out his brothers hated Joseph by virtue of the fact that he was the favored son of their father, Jacob. In fact, his brothers despised him so much, they did something so wickedly despicable. They sold Joseph into slavery, yeah, where he ends up as a slave of Egypt. And as a slave of Egypt, he goes through many trials and tribulations where he is misunderstood, misaligned, mistreated, to where he ends up in one of the worst prisons of the ancient world, the prisons of Pharaoh. But because God is with Joseph, not only is he able to overcome all his trials and tribulations, but he's able to ascend and arise from all of that and become the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, essentially becoming the prime minister. And it couldn't happen at a better time because just when that happened, a massive regional famine has hit all of Egypt and the surrounding nation, threatening everyone of mass starvation. But because God endowed Joseph with incredible divine wisdom from above, he was able to come up with a massive, comprehensive, strategic plan that would essentially save everyone. And one particular family that caught wind about this amazing politician was none other than Joseph's family. So they send the family off, the brothers, to go to Egypt in the hope that this man, unbeknownst to them, this is their long-lost brother they thought was long dead, in the hopes that he would favor and give some food to them. Okay, And so we see now that God is orchestrating the possibility for Joseph to be reconciled with his brothers. And in obedience to God, Joseph takes this cue from the Lord and says, Okay, Lord, I will now attempt to reconcile with my estranged loved ones, my brothers. How? By all the while maintaining his, his, his disguised role because they don't know that this is Joseph that they are talking to. So Joseph has to figure out a way of how he can reconcile with his brothers to see if they're ready to do so, and he conducts two tests. Test number one, he wants to know if they're willing to acknowledge all that they did wrong to him all those years ago, which they were 
by acknowledging and confessing their sin. Test number two, they, he wanted to know if they were willing to change for the better, if they hadn't changed for the better already, which they were, evidenced by how they treated the new favorite child, Benjamin, way differently, way better than how they treated Joseph all those years ago. And so with that now out of the way, the synopsis is clear. Let's engage our passage for today. Starting in verse 1, we read, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So as Joseph is restraining himself until he knows that his brothers are going to make things right to be right with him, he can't take it anymore. And he finally reveals himself for who he really is to them. How? By unleashing what basically is a blood-curdling cry of revelation. And it's clear from the text that Joseph is not crying a cry of anger, a cry of bitterness, a cry for revenge, but a cry of massive relief. So loudly that even bystanders can hear Joseph as he is letting out this massive, voluminous cry. It's comparable to the cry of a soldier finding out from his commanding officer that the enemy surrendered, the war is over, and they can finally go back home to their families. It's like the cry of a cancer patient being told after being diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, you're cancer-free, you've beat it. It is the cry of agonizing, sweet release where a person can let go of the burdens of all the pain, all the sorrow, all the fear, all the anguish because the threat that was against them has been neutralized. This is Joseph's cry. Now, you might be wondering, Pastor, how do you know? How do you know that is the cry of Joseph? I'll tell you how. Because of the questions that Joseph asked his brother that first comes out of his mouth. What is the first question that Joseph asked his brothers? Is my father still alive? You know, I find it interesting After over 20 years, out of all the questions that Joseph could have asked, how are you doing? What's new with you? Do you have any kids? What's going on in the land of Canaan, the promised land? Right? He first asks instead, is our father still alive? Is Jacob still alive? Why? Because Joseph knew that if there was anyone who was damaged and broken by the collateral damage of the fallout between Joseph and his brothers, it was their father. If there was anyone who was hurt beyond belief because of the estrangement that happened between Joseph and his brothers, it was Jacob. You see, Jacob, though far from being innocent and certainly far from being righteous, was still nevertheless a victim. He was a victim of collateral damage. And once Joseph knew that he and his brothers were going to be okay, he immediately draws his attention to the person who was victimized by the falling out they had with one another. They wanted to know, he wanted to know how his father was. Now, we need to pause for just a moment and think about the implication of this. And you know what that is? It's basically this. The healing that occurs when two groups of people, when two individuals reconcile, doesn't just stay between those two people. Let me say that again. The healing that occurs when people who were estranged reconcile, doesn't just stay amongst them. It flows out and it collaterally blesses, or I could put it another way, it collaterally heals the near and dear people around them. Yeah, the blessings that come when people reconcile, when they come back together and when they choose to let bygones be bygones and they come back together, the healing that comes overflows out of them to the people surrounding them. Now, what does this tell us? 
It tells us something that we need to consider. So often, when we think about the pros and cons about whether or not we're going to pursue reconciliation with a strange loved one, one pro that we hardly consider, but we should, is the way in which our reconciling with another could heal the people around us. And one con that we never consider, but we always should, is by refusing to reconcile, we're going to collaterally damage the people around us who get impacted by that. Let me give you a real-life illustration that is still an unfortunate thing today, and that's divorce. Divorce. God hates divorce. He hates it with a passion. And one of the reasons why he hates it so much is because he knows the damage it does to children. And, of course, this is not just God who says this, but even secular therapists, family psychiatrists, they say the same thing. Children are damaged in the context of divorce. And yet here's what's so astounding. Many parents who are divorced always say how shocked they are about how their children are still being negatively impacted even to their adult age, because of the divorce. Many of these parents assume, hey, my kids are resilient. They'll, they're tough. They'll get over this. They'll be able to move past this. They'll move on. But study after study tells us that children hardly ever move on, if at all. Studies tell us that adult people who were children of divorce have a higher rate of mental illness, a higher rate of criminal activity, a higher rate of uh, high-risk behaviors, higher rate of dropping out of school, and a long life of unemployment? Now let me ask you, what do you think an entire generation of divorced kids has on society? What kind of impact do you think an entire generation of people who have a high rate of mental illness, high rate of criminal activity, high rate of unemployment, high rate of high-risk behaviors will have overall on society? Probably not a good one, right? But conversely, let me ask this. What kind of impact do you think an entire generation can have on society if they've been exposed to the healing power of someone they love being reconciled to someone else that they love, like their parents, like their siblings, like the people who are of such influence for them? What's my point? My point is this. Reconciliation is never a private matter. The blessings that come when two people reconcile, when they restore that relationship, flows in and out through them to the surrounding people, the families, the friends, the co-workers, the neighbors, the city, the world. This is the first fruit of reconciliation. It brings abundant, overabundant collateral healing to the people who are near and dear to those who are estranged from each other. Now let's consider the second fruit of reconciliation. And this leads me to my next point, the enhancement of love through reconciliation. Read again with me verses 4 and 5 where we read, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So after Joseph asks about his father, he now draws his attention to his brothers. And what does he say? Come near to me. Come near to me. You guys ever hear someone say to another, get away from me. <laughs> Just get away from me. What are the underlying emotions when a person is saying that to another person? Usually it's emotions of anger, hostility, maybe even hatred and violence. But the fact that Joseph is saying the exact opposite tells us that he's filled with the opposite set of emotions. He's filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and so forth. To where these emotions manifest to the next words that come out of his mouth, which is what? Do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. 
Joseph, remember, as I said in my last point, he witnessed firsthand the transformation of his brothers. He saw that they were willing to acknowledge their sins. He saw that they were willing to change for the better, that they did change for the better. But Joseph saw something else in his brothers that he needed to help them to change into, that they have yet to experience. Another transformation. What am I talking about? I'm talking about Joseph seeing his brothers being filled with guilt and shame because now that they know this is Joseph, they're overwhelmed with sorrow, with anger at themselves for what they did to him. And Joseph knew that if he didn't do something to facilitate their changing of perspective that they had at that moment, they were going to be doomed to a life of self-hatred, self-condemnation, maybe even self-destruction. And so in a spirit of love and in the desire to promote peace and harmony into his family, he says these words, do not be distressed or angry with yourself. In other words, do not hate yourself. Let it go. Don't condemn yourself for what you did. I am not going to hold this against you. Why does Joseph feel the need to say these words to his brothers? Well, it's so interesting. There are a lot of people today who really hate themselves. And one of the main reasons why they hate themselves is because they cannot stand what they did to someone they love, how they hurt them, how they betrayed them, how they wounded and wronged them. And it's just constantly haunting them throughout their life. And what's so weird about people who are like this is that the only way they can cope is avoiding this person that they hurt. And so they'll turn a cold shoulder. They'll avoid them at all costs, giving the message, I don't want you in my life. Isn't that weird? By hating themselves, they take it out on the person that they're so hurt by because they hurt them so badly. How do you make sense of that? Well, I recently came across an article that explains this behavior so well. Take a listen. The article is entitled, Sometimes People Leave You Because They Hate Themselves. It starts off like this, quote, Sometimes people leave you not because they don't want you, but because they want to punish themselves. They're feeling something about themselves, and their life seems to fall apart. It doesn't align with being loved. It works better with being alone. So they push you away to fulfill that narrative of themselves. They can give up on everything because, quote, I'm unlovable anyway. Sometimes people leave you because they hate themselves. I've been that person who hated herself so much that she denied love and rejected people who she knew cared about her. It's possible. Your own despair can eat you alive and blind you from anything good in your life. You can't even fight for yourself, let alone someone else, end quote. You know, what this author is describing can apply to any range of relationships that are meaningful to us. Our relationship with our spouse, a loved one, you know, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a sibling, a friend, right? But here's the question. What would a person like that become if they confronted someone like Joseph? If someone like Joseph came into their life and said, I not only love you, I forgive you. I absolve you. I'm letting it go. I don't care what you've done to me. I am not going to hold this against you. Therefore, stop holding it against yourself. What kind of change and transformation could that do to a person who is struggling with that kind of self-loathing? We see it in verse 15. Read again. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. What are these brothers doing? What are they allowing Joseph to do? They're allowing Joseph to kiss him. Why is that a big deal? Well, think about what a kiss is. A kiss is a physical message that says to the person who is receiving it, 
I love you. I don't want anything in between us. I don't want anything to come between us. I want you in my life. I want to embrace you. I don't want to let you go. I want you here by my side. And I want you to receive from me. In other words, it's the complete opposite message that a self-condemning person preaches to themselves. You see? And when these brothers receive the kiss, when they accept Joseph's kiss, that is a symbolic way of them saying, I am going to choose to believe your message, Joseph, over the message I'm saying to myself because I hate myself so much. And then what happens? What does it say right after receiving the kiss? After that, his brothers talked with him. No more radial silence. No more distance. There's communication. There's connection. There is communion. You see? Let me ask. What would happen to our society if more and more people received this forgiveness from the people who they wronged. What would happen to a person, to a family, to a group of people, to a neighborhood, to a city that is filled with those who have received the absolving, forgiving love of someone who they wounded and hurted? It would change. Do you know why? Because that's what forgiveness does. Forgiveness enhances the power of of human love. Let me say that again. Forgiveness enhances the power of human love. A few sermons ago, I said that human love of itself doesn't have much potency or power to change another person. Unless, of course, that love is supplemented with forgiveness. Once you add forgiveness to a love for a strange loved one, it takes your love to levels that human love could never achieve on its own. It's like love going Super Saiyan level five, for those of you Dragon Ball lovers, right? It just takes it to a level of power and potency that changes that person in such a way they actually stop hating themselves and therefore stop distancing themselves from you because they can now tolerate being in your presence because you've allowed them to tolerate themselves because of your forgiving mercies. Do you understand? This is what happens when people are exposed to the power of forgiveness that enhances the power of love. So, here's the question. How does a person conjure up the willingness, the ability to forgive on top of their love for someone who hurt them so bad? How can we be like Joseph so that not only can we keep loving our estranged loved one, but actually supplement our love for them by a willingness to absolve and to forgive them so that they can be changed by that love. Let me go to my last point to answer that question. The Savior who provides reconciliation. Let's read verse 5 through 11. Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing, plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. So one of the recurring statements Joseph says to his brothers is this. 
You didn't bring me here. God brought me here. You didn't send me to Egypt. God sent me to Egypt. He says it in verse 5, in verse 7, and again in verse 8. And you'll notice what he's essentially saying. He's saying, guys, you didn't send me to Egypt. I, you didn't send me to prison. You didn't send me to suffering. You didn't send me to almost death. God sent me here. Now, some people think that Joseph is doing this is because he's trying to almost excuse or downplay the evil that his brothers have done to him so that they would stop being so hard on themselves. No, that's not what Joseph's doing. Joseph is trying to teach his brothers and us of how he is able to not only love his brothers, but to supplement that love with forgiveness. Take a look again at what he says in verse 8, the last time he says, God sent me, not you. Why did God send Joseph to Egypt? He says, so that I could be what? The father of Pharaoh. The father of Pharaoh. What does that even mean? Well, I tell you what it can't mean. It can't mean that he says he has more power and more authority than Pharaoh because if you go back to the chapter when Pharaoh makes him prime minister, he explicitly tells Joseph, look, I'm giving you a lot of power, but just remember, I'm still the guy in charge. I still have authority over you. I'm still the head honcho, so don't let this get to your head, Joseph, okay? I'm still the leader of Egypt. Okay? So clearly, this is not Joseph saying that he is more powerful than Pharaoh. So what does he mean? Well, it turns out, Joseph is borrowing Egyptian theology to make a profound point. And basically, he's saying that he has the perspective of God. He is able to see God's perspective, right, by being in this position. You see, the father of Pharaoh was a phrase that referred to God because in Egyptian mythology, the father of Pharaoh was essentially God, the God of Ra. He was the chief God of the Egyptian pantheon. Right? And so by saying that he is the father of Pharaoh, he's saying synonymously, God. God sent me to Egypt so that I could see a perspective that only God has. And it was because of that perspective, Joseph says, I am able to forgive. Here's the question. What is this divine perspective he's referring to? It's the perspective of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says God loves people in a way they can never deserve. Again, the gospel is God loves people in a way that they could never earn, never merit, never deserve. How? Well, let me just highlight three ways. Number one, God loves us in a way that we do not deserve by first forgiving us of our sins. All the things that you've done to hurt yourself, to hurt others, which in the end is sinning against God, right? Because everything, including you, belong to him. God says, I am not going to hold this against you. I'm going to pardon you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to absolve you. I'm not going to hold this against you, okay? Number two, God loves us in a way we do not deserve by saving us from the consequences of our sins. The Bible says that every sin, even the most minuscule minor sins, deserve the greatest punishment of all because it's not simply the degree of your sin that deserves punishment, but the person you're sinning against. Because the person that we sin against is so good, so holy, so pure, even the minor infractions that we could ever do deserve the greatest cosmic condemnation of all. But God says, I love you so much that I will spare you, I will save you from suffering those consequences. Which leads us to the third way that God loves us in a way that we do not deserve by suffering for our sins. How? By coming into the world as Jesus Christ so he could pay the full punishment, the full penalty for our sins so that if we turn from our sins and turn to him as our Lord, 
we do get the forgiveness of sins, we become saved from the consequences of our sins. You see? So how does our God, as Jesus Christ, suffer? He suffers by being betrayed by his brothers. He suffers by being falsely accused. He suffers by being falsely imprisoned. He suffers by suffering the worst punishment of all as he's dying on the cross. Does this sound like anyone familiar? Sounds like Joseph, right? Turns out, when Joseph says, God has given me an opportunity to walk a mile in his shoes, to understand his perspective, he's talking about what our God would do for us. He would suffer so that we could be saved, just like Joseph suffered so his brothers could be saved. The perspective that Joseph is referring to when he says the father of Pharaoh is the perspective of the gospel. Here's the question. Do you have that perspective? Do you understand the magnitude of God's love for you? If you do, then you find it in yourself to forgive as well as to love your estranged loved ones. It turns out it's true. John Lennon was right. All you do need is love. You need God's love for you in Christ Jesus. The question is, have you encountered, have you experienced, have you relished, have you received this love for yourself? If you have, then you find within you the inspiring force that you need, the desire that comes from God to not only keep loving your estranged loved one, but to keep wanting to forgive them so that they can be changed and be fully restored to you. This is the last sermon in this series. And all throughout the series, I know God has been knocking on that door of your heart. And he's bringing to mind that person that he's been echoing every week as you've gone through this series. Given that this is the last sermon, but certainly not the last opportunity, maybe you should consider finally obeying your God. I don't know who he is putting on your heart right now, but I do know what the next steps should be. Pray, process, and then begin planning of making the first move of pursuing and seeking after that person who you know is probably hating themselves right now for what they've done to you. Could you find it in you because of what Christ has done for you to pursue the fruits of reconciliation? Not only will you bless that person, but you'll collaterally heal the people around you. And it'll be the beginning process of you adding light to the world to a world that is so darkened by brokenness and sin. My prayer is that you would respond just as I pray for myself to respond to this message that I know I need to hear. May you heed it as well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we come to a close now in our study of Joseph, I do pray for my brothers and sisters who have no doubt been struggling and straining as they're hearing these words and behind them your voice, summoning them to a call of obedience, but also a call of hard work, of thinking and praying and processing with scripture, with other believers on how to approach that estranged loved one. Father, we need your grace and we need your guidance so that we can do our part in bringing hope to a world that has become so despairing because of the lack of reconciliation that is happening right now, a lack of the manifestation of your love for us in Christ Jesus. 
Lord, your love for us is the hope of the world. All this world needs is your healing, forgiving, cross-centered love. Father, we pray that we will be conduits of that love and not block it to a world that desperately needs to experience it. Help us to do that by being willing to follow the example of Joseph and even more so the one that he saw, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen and amen. We're now going to give God his highs and our